But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him, lowering him in a basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and in Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word of the Lord. There's been a uh, funny and just bizarre ad on the radio of late in the DFW Metroplex. It's for the lottery, and it, it asks, begins by asking, how would you like to win the lottery? And I think, yes, thank you very much. I would like to win the lottery. And it goes on to dream for you. You know, you could go to, what would you do? You go to Paris, you go to Monte Carlo. I think those would be really exciting places to go, and I'm intrigued. And then the ad takes the most odd turn. It says, or you could uh, fill up a swimming pool with nacho cheese and throw the largest nacho party in the history of, of the world, which is the first time I heard it, I thought somebody was playing a practical joke. I mean, why would you go from these great ideas to this notion of nacho cheese and realized that when I heard it, it actually produced a fair amount of anxiety for me. Uh, at first, it's just the, the improbability of actually being able to pull it off. How would you keep all that nacho cheese warm in the pool? And then what would you do once it uh, hit your filters and skimmers? You would never get that clean. And then I have a big problem with, um, I'm actually reluctant to tell you this because some, one of you is gonna use it against me. That shows you how much I trust you. But I really don't like to be sticky, um, you know, my hands to be sticky. So um, the idea of being exposed to all that, and then you start to think, okay, what if somebody did pull this off, right? And you're sitting there, and you, you reach for a, a nacho chip, and you think, this is cool, right? But then you've got half the church putting their feet in the pool <laughs> and kicking in that. It's just disgusting. The whole thing just produces anxiety for me. And, I, and by the end of the ad, I'm like, okay, I don't want to win the lottery. That's fine. I don't need it, and I don't want to go down that road. And so what we're talking about this morning is, is anxiety, really, or we, something we might also call fear. Now, when I say fear, I don't mean uh, terror, right? You know, when, um, in the Batman Lego movie, when he talks about what he's afraid of, he, he names what, boys and girls? Names clown snakes, right? It's his greatest fear. We're not talking about, you know, you're afraid of dementors or some kind of magical creature, something like that. We're talking about what actually causes us anxiety that then makes us act in a way to protect ourselves from that anxiety or to move in a direction that um, 
helps to alleviate that anxiety that we feel. And this, this could also be called fear, but I don't want you to think, when we say fear, I don't want you to think of terror in terms of some, um, you know, I'm terrified of falling off a, a cruise ship or a ship in the middle of the ocean and being left there, right? That's not what we're talking about because I don't believe that's going to happen living in Dallas, Texas, and so it's not really driving any of my actions or decisions. We're talking about everyday anxieties that are driving your actions or decisions. And to see if you really understand anxiety, or at least American anxiety, I uh, looked up the top 10 fears of American people this week. I have the hot sheet from this year, statistically. And I am going to quiz you this morning to see if you know anything about American anxiety. I'm going to give you three options. And of those three options, only one is actually on the top 10 list. And you're going to vote after I read them, and we're going to see who can figure out which is actually on the top ten list. Clear? All right. Number one, economic depression. Number two, fear of U.S. involvement in another world war. Number three, fear of death. All right. If you think uh, a true top ten fear and anxiety of American culture is economic depression, raise your hand. All right, I'll give that about a fifth. Fear of U.S. involvement in another world war. Wow, another fifth. Okay, number three, fear of death. All right, very similar to the first service. All right, we will come to the actual list and the answer in uh, just a little bit. Uh, we're going to draw this out for a while. So, it's so fun to do that. Oh, I just heard somebody say, I'm going to Google it. You better not. <laughs> Elders are policing the sanctuary for anyone pulling out a cell phone at this moment. So we're making our way through the book of Acts, and we come to this section of chapter 9. And it, it moves Saul's story forward a little bit. Last week we saw that Saul converted to follow Jesus and to throw um, his lot in, really to rethink everything that had come before in his life in light of the resurrection of Jesus who met him resurrected Christ, met him on the road to Damascus, and begins to follow Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus told Ananias, you know, uh, Saul is going to have to suffer a terrible amount in order to follow after me. And we already see that coming to pass. If you notice in verse 23, uh, uh, Saul's old family, his Jewish brothers, have rejected him and are now trying to persecute him unto death. He escapes, he goes to Jerusalem, but when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's not yet received by the apostles and disciples because they're afraid of him. They know this guy and that he's been threatening the church and we don't want to hang out with him. We think this is a trick. And so he's rejected in that capacity in verse 26. And you see Saul really having to wrestle with the reality of will, you know, following this call of Jesus, will it be enough for me to walk alone with Jesus? Right? Even lost, losing all my old friends, not having established any new friends, he finds himself, uh, his, finds himself in this place. As you go down through this passage, we end up at verse 31. And in verse 31, Luke gives one of his characteristic updates. This is one of the things that sets Luke apart as an author. I don't know if you've noticed yet, but uh, every chapter or so, give or take, uh, Luke gives an update, basically trying to brief you on the overall status of the church as the gospel has been moving forward. And uh, in 31, he does this uh, to keep us up to date. You can look there with me. 
Luke writes, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now that is a remarkable summary for the church uh, for a number of reasons, but for one particular clause that we're going to focus on today, which is uh, the notion of how the church is being built up. Did you catch the actual how the church is growing and multiplying? It's walking in what? The fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Those are the two things that we're going to focus on this morning. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to to understand and walk in each? And uh, sort of a big picture summary moment for us. A number of times we've reminded ourselves why we've entered into this sermon series about the book of Acts. Formerly we did, before we did Acts, what did we do? We did Amos. And in Amos, we saw Amos acting as God's prosecutor, coming against God's people and saying, you have not been the faithful people of God. And so we said, well, what does it look like to be the faithful people of God? Well, let's go to Acts, where the church is described as the faithful people of God. We come to thirty-one of verse thirty-one of chapter nine, in which Luke expressly tells us how the people of God are being the faithful people of God. So, if we want to learn what it means to be faithful, what it means to walk steadfastly with the Lord, what it means to grow, what it means to be multiplied, we had better pay attention and understand what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. So, first, the fear of the Lord. What is this fear of the Lord? Well. Luke is creating a connection with the Old Testament people of God. Right? Luke has always been intent to draw the connection between what has happened in the Old Testament and what is happening in the New Testament. And fear of the Lord has always characterized God's people. There's really not a time in which God's people were, was not exhorted to be walking in the fear of the Lord. We could go to Deuteronomy for a succinct summary of that. In chapter 12, 10, verses 12 and 13, It is written, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So for all this we're supposed to be doing for the Lord, the serving and following and loving him, what does it begin with? It begins with fearing him. It begins with a holy reverence for him and his character that then dictates or drives us in that direction. And all of that action, loving and serving, is the result of fearing. We get in another interesting perspective on fear of the Lord in Psalm 19.9, where it's written, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Well, in what way is the fear of the Lord clean? It's like a bar of soap. What, what is the author after here? And what it means is that God himself is clean. He's pure. He's holy. He's unspoiled. And to fear him draws you into relationship with him. And as you're drawn into relationship with him, you're drawn out of relationship with the world. And so to be living in fear of him is to be walking closer to him. And as a result, you experience less uh, spoiling in the world. And it renders you clean. Fearing the Lord actually produces a spiritual cleanliness. One other angle on fear this morning comes from Proverbs 1.7, which the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
also in the Psalms, it will articulate this notion that the very beginning of knowledge or the very beginning of wisdom in this world, of seeing the world as one ought and understanding it and making good decisions in the world, is driven by one sole criteria, which is the fear of the Lord. Now, if we were to just stop there, right, this would be a phenomenally important concept. That the fear of the Lord is that which equips my love and service to Him. It protects me from sin. And, right, thirdly, it helps me to have wisdom and knowledge and grow in that fashion. The fear of the Lord is an incredibly important aspect to walking with Him. So, is that really an anxiety that you feel? All right, some anxieties can be good. Right? This is what the fear of the Lord is about. Do I, have, do I find myself in a place where I'm often asking, where am I in relation to God? Am I making decisions that are based out of reverence for Him? Right? Is that what's informing the wisdom in my life? Or do we tend to be very anxious about other things? What are you anxious about? Right? Again, we're not talking about clown snakes. But what do you worry about during the week? Where does your mind and your heart go? Now, sometimes super annoying, pastorally, some, some guy will come up and say, I don't have anxiety. And if you feel that way, and if you think that of your own mind and heart, we think you're ridiculous and hope that you change your opinion by the end of this sermon. So really, what are you anxious about? Right? Okay, here's the top ten list for America. You can see if you were right, not many of you were. Number ten, air pollution. Number nine, North Korea using weapons. Number eight, global warming and climate change. Uh, number seven, thank you. I have to, it wouldn't number it backwards for me in the word processing program, so I have to count backwards as I'm, the numbers go forward. I don't even remember what number one. The U.S., so this is the one that you had before that's actually on the list. The U.S. will be involved in another world war. Number five, high medical bills. Number four, not having enough money for the future. Number three, pollution of drinking water. Number two, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. Number nine, American health. Uh, number two, forget the numbers. It's all top ten. American health care. And the number one, anxiety of Americans by a significant margin which is something interestingly that hasn't really happened in the past for American anxiety, uh, corruption of government officials. So there's your top 10 list. Now, uh, what's interesting here? It's actually a fascinating list, particularly not only in how it's changed from past lists, but particularly for where we're sitting and what is and isn't on the list. Uh, to summarize very briefly, two answers are political, four answers are environmental, two answers are economic, and two answers are about man-made disasters. So those are the most pressing 10 anxieties upon people. And what is most interesting here is there's no reference to God. And you and the first service, the vast majority chose death, right? Which is actually a result of you being a Christian, right? It's a good choice, but it's not actually a choice of Americans. And the actual anxiety is there's no choice of death. There's no reference to God. In fact, there's no anxiety that doesn't have to do with some calamity that might hit you in the here and now. There's nothing about wondering uh, about um, really the end of things or where things are going or any kind of ultimate accountability. Now, that is not only startling, but frankly, it's pretty scary. 
And it's scary for a reason that's been around for a very long time. It was a reason that was originally introduced by the philosopher Aristotle, but it's a reason that's come to play uh, uh, or uh, to receive a lot of attention in Christian philosophy in the last 20 years or 30 years, particularly one of the most um, preeminent Christian philosophers today is Alistair McIntyre. And he's been doing a lot of business with this notion from Aristotle. So what's the notion? The notion from Aristotle is that uh, if there is no telos, then there can be no virtue. Okay, what, did, what did Aristotle mean by that? A telos is a goal. A telos is an endpoint. A telos is a final chapter to a story. A telos is where you're expecting to get. And as a result of that destination, right, you inform the journey that you're taking. So if my um, telos right, is to get to Fort Worth tomorrow, right, it's going to inform uh, the transportation I take. I'm probably not going to walk. Uh, it's going to inform whether I get on my maps program and look at the different routes and the congestion. It's going to inform what time I choose to make that journey because of rush hour traffic. See, my telos getting to Fort Worth informs the journey that I'm taking. Now, what Aristotle says is in life, if a human being is rendered without a telos, without a direction or a destination to which they're going to get, then there's no reason to make any particular, situ- uh, any particular decision in the here and now. Right? You're, just, you're basically at the whim of your feelings and affections as they are striking you in any given moment. And it makes virtue impossible because virtue is choosing to do the hard thing, right? even in the midst of when it doesn't make the most sense. And so if there's not some telos that you're working towards or driving to to inform those decisions, then we'll cease to be a virtuous and righteous people, and all we'll be left to is what? To comfort. Right? All we'll be able to do is pursue some kind of comfort for ourselves in a given moment because there is nothing uh, driving us. Now, how does this kind of play out in our lives? Well, when we start to look at a biblical perspective to our heart, right, and we take this notion of not having a telos or something that ultimately produces the right anxiety then our heart can run after anything it wants, and it can be deceived very easily. And boys and girls, you can certainly see this in a very great story, which is uh, captured in the movie Tangled, which most of you have probably seen. And Tangled tells the story of Rapunzel. Right? Now, Rapunzel is uh, raised by Mother Gothel in a tower in the middle of the forest, and is Mother Gothel a good mother? No. Is she even a mother? What is she? She's a witch. And she stole Rapunzel from the royal family when she was a baby because Rapunzel had the power of the flower that heals everything and delays aging. And so Mother Gothel controls Rapunzel in the tower and raises her to believe that she's good and loving towards Rapunzel and that the world is what is scary. If she goes out into the world, the world will try to take advantage of her and steal her power and use it to their benefit. And so Rapunzel lives in the tower, afraid of the outside world, and never goes out. But as she reaches her 18th birthday, she's very curious and wants to begin uh, stepping out and exploring the world. But realize the irony here. You know, she's, uh, she believes Mother Gothel and so stays hidden. The irony is that Mother Gothel is the one that's taking advantage of her. And the truth exists outside of the tower. 
And of course, the rest of the movie tells that story, but that's very much our situation. That we're born into a world that is uh, broken and filled with lies, and we're often invited to participate in those lies and end up fearing the wrong thing. End up even you know, fearing things that might not be, or indeed often are not, uh, for our good, and those fears drive our decisions, uh, our choices that we make, to protect ourselves or to try to find comfort in the midst of those fears. So even as Rapunzel was very reluctant, afraid of Mother Gothel, fearing her and wanting to obey her, afraid of going out into the world, that's ultimately where she finds truth. And we can be driven by fear of various things that prevent us from actually finding truth. And of course, where we find truth is in fear of being located in the right spot, which is in uh, God himself. Now you can imagine this on a very practical level and not a fantastical level. You can imagine a man who is desperately afraid that he will not provide for his family and there will be financial insecurity in the future. This is what weighs on his heart the most. And when he's left alone, this is what he's fretting over and biting his nails over. And so he works hard. He works super hard, in fact, so hard that he's not often around his home. And he works at understanding investments and making good investments for the family. And he builds up this nice uh, storehouse of wealth to ensure the financial security of his family. And he labors at this his entire life. But at the end of his days, he still dies. He still stands before Jesus. And what, to what degree does that serve him at that point? Right. Now understand what we're saying. We're not trying to say that it's wrong to be financially prudent. It's not wrong to provide for your household and your kids. But when we begin to be driven by an overfear or an overanxiety, which means we give too much credit to the power of something, and drives the choices in our life, and we become consumed by that. And that fear or that anxiety trumps the fear or anxiety of the Lord. You can imagine, uh, say, a, a woman who runs her household and she's an, afraid of environmental factors, right? Two of the top five in our top ten list was pollution. And so you build the perfect, the perfect protected house. Uh, you walk through sealers on every doors, and there are air purifiers and water purifiers and scanners examining all of the con contaminants and pollutants that can come into your house. And good for you, your kids reach 85 and 90 and are healthy as healthy can be. But all of you still die, and all of you still stand before Jesus. And at that time, does Jesus say to you, you know, I wish you had been a little bit more anxious about our relationship than you were about the environment and its threats to you. Funny enough, you still die. Whether you're healthy and free of contaminants or not, that's still the end of the road and you still stand before me. All fears, all anxieties must come under the true fear, the true anxiety, which is uh, submission to that fear of the Lord. The great irony here is the wrong fear, right, when it's misplaced, drives us to the wrong comfort. Fear and comfort are desperately closely linked together. Whatever I am filled with anxiety over, I'm going to seek something, some kind of comfort that meets me in that place. And so we need to consider what it is to walk in the comfort, not of what we would create, but of the Holy Spirit. 
And this is where Luke draws out what makes the church truly new. If the fear of the Lord is what unifies us to the Old Testament people of God, walking in the comfort of the Spirit is what marks us out as truly distinct from the Old Testament people of God. You can hardly establish a theology of the Spirit even being a person in the Old Testament. The best the Spirit does really in the grand scheme of things is to be a spirit of prophecy for the prophets who speak. But it's when you enter the New Testament that the Spirit receives really an identity, a persona, and is very busy at work in making us who we are and making the church the people of God. And he is indeed called the comforter. So what would it mean to walk in that comfort? Well, where do you seek comfort? If we're saying comfort brings relief from fear and anxiety, where do you go for comfort? Where you go for comfort is going to help you see what you're truly anxious over in some capacity. So if I find myself unusually uh, or bizarrely comforted by walking through Costco, which is true, maybe I have an anxiety over not having enough. And walls and walls of bulk supplies assures me that I will never uh, be in want and there will never be a world without peanut butter pretzels unless, you know, the one really annoying thing about Costco, you all know this if you go there, is they just discontinue things. Like they carry and get you addicted to something and they're like, ha ha, we're not going to carry it anymore. Anyway, that wasn't part of the sermon. Moving on. So maybe if I'm anxious about noise, or I'm sorry, maybe if I find comfort in noise, right? You're, you're, like, you're like my grandparents. If you went to visit my grandparents, they never turned the television off. It was always on. It was always playing. Uh, why? Well, maybe noise is something that alleviates your anxiety over being alone. And maybe you're addicted to HGTV. And maybe you are watching uh, Chip and JoJo every night of the week. And you think, um, you think about it a little bit and you find the strange comfort here. Maybe that comfort has something to do with the belief that, that you will never change. And if I believe and I'm scared and I'm anxious over the fact that I will never change, it sure is fun to watch something that changes in an hour and changes from desperate unbeauty to desperate beauty and it encourages me in some capacity. Or if I find comfort in working on my house unceasingly and driving it by my own hands, not HGTV, but maybe there's an anxiety that my, my life or my marriage will never be right, but my house sure can be. Or maybe you just find comfort in endless escape into fantasy or something that allows you to separate from reality. And there you would simply confess that you have so much anxiety, you don't know what to do, but to get lost in something that would separate you from it. Our comfort reveals to us how, uh, what might be driving our fear and anxiety, but notice how um, this comfort, this fear that leads to comfort, and then almost becoming addicted sometimes to this comfort can be a very vicious cycle. It can be a consuming cycle. The reason it can be consuming is what? Another, another way we could say where we seek comfort or describe how we seek comfort is to say where we find salvation, right? Because if we're driven by some particular fear or anxiety, I'm going to look for comfort in this place, which really means I'm trying to be saved from this anxiety and fear. And if that salvation is an idol, which means that salvation is something other than Christ, then it's ultimately going to require sacrifices from me and require more and more from me because that's what an idol does. It devours 
right? The sacrificer, it doesn't give life to the sacrificer. And so uh, the, the Japanese have a wonderful saying that captures the entirety of this notion. And the saying is this. Uh, it's three sentences. The man takes a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. Then the drink takes the man. The man takes a drink. The drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes the man. Now, we can throw any kind of comfort into the, the place that the noun drink holds. But do you see how once, say I'm anxious about you know, financial security or I'm anxious that my kids are going to turn out right, and I start to seek comfort in something right, that alleviates that anxiety, say drink, well eventually I turn more and more to that, to that comfort. So, so much so to the point where I may end up where my fear and anxiety is no longer the outcome of my kids. My fear and anxiety now is that you would take my comfort away from me. Right? Because that's really what's salvific for me. That's what's going to save me or rescue me from the condition that I'm in. This is a vicious, vicious cycle, right, of being caught in identi- being driven by the wrong fear and then seeking the wrong comfort. And we've already identified the right fear as the fear of the Lord, but to, to realize the importance and significance of it, I think it will help to hear from the Apostle Paul uh, right, this very Saul that has been transformed as he writes later in his letter to the Romans in chapter 14. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now has that truly been a consideration in your week? Right, talk about a telos. Talk about an endpoint. Oh, I'm going to stand before the risen Christ, laid absolutely bare, and give account for everything that I've done. And my knee will bow whether I like it or not. And then am I going to be so worried about any of the other anxieties that dominate the American scheme, or is there only going to be one very severe and very real anxiety? And that is the reality of standing before the risen Christ. And does that fear, which is a healthy fear, it's a healthy anxiety, does that inform the life that I'm living now? And too often, of course, it doesn't. We tend to be a fickle people. We tend to be more worried about the splinter in our thumb than the, the great calamity that's about to befall us. But if we order our fear correctly and begin, what does it mean to really inform my day and my week and my month and my year and my time and my energy and my finances that I will stand before the risen Christ and give account for this brief, incredibly brief span that we call life. And that will inform, right, and kind of drive the rest of eternity. Why would that not be the loudest and most significant anxiety that drives me. And if that is the most loud anxiety, if my greatest fear is the fear of the Lord, then in some capacity that could be debilitating. Right? If you were really serious about the fear of the Lord, if you even considered when God actually shows up in some way, apparent to a person, anytime in Scripture, what happens to the person? They crumble like a sheet. That's the reality of the anxiety that should go along with the fear of the Lord. And it could be debilitating except for God gives himself to comfort us. Right? And this is the gift of the Spirit. 
What does it mean to come to the Spirit, this hard-working Spirit that marks us out as different than the Old Testament people of God? It is the Spirit that overshadows Mary and produces Jesus. It is the Spirit that declares Jesus to be the Son of God at his baptism. It is the Spirit that equips Jesus for ministry when he leaves the wilderness. It is the Spirit that baptizes the church at Pentecost. It is the Spirit that Luke goes out of his way, says to equip the apostles in every aspect of ministry throughout the book of Acts. It is the Spirit that gives gifts to the church to build it up. It is the Spirit that unifies us as one. It is the Spirit that produces fruit in the lives of believers. It is the Spirit that bears witness to us and seals us in Christ. It is the Spirit that intercedes on our behalf before the Father. And it is the Spirit who brings such comfort in every way that he is called the Comforter. And so if our fear is rightly placed, then the Spirit becomes a non-negotiable necessity that I pursue and long for. Because the only way that I will navigate this fear correctly, this anxiety of standing before the risen Christ, is to know that he is so for me, he has given me part of himself and encourages me on that path of faithfulness. And so as we celebrate the gift of the Spirit, and as you come to the table this morning, perhaps you could just ask this question. In what way, today and this week and moving forward, do your anxieties and fears need to be redirected? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning as having such reverence for the Father that you were completely obedient And being so reliant on the power and encouragement of the Spirit, you faltered not. We thank you that you feed us out of your righteousness and holiness at this table. Would you forgive us for being anxious and fearful about the wrong thing all the time? And instead, would you help us to be mindful that the thing we should be most anxious about is how we walk in the fear of the Lord. And as we wrestle with that reality, Holy Spirit, would you come and encourage us Strengthen us, comfort us, even in that endeavor as we make all other fears and anxieties uh, bend the knee to the fear of you. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name, amen.